All right, Mercy Hill Church, grab a Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 15. I hope that you've been encouraged so far today as we've heard um, evidence of God's grace and stories of God's grace. As we look at this particular text today, um, I hope that you've been encouraged so far because at first glance, this text might not seem encouraging. Some of you are here in person. Some of you are listening via the live stream and joining with us who are not yet followers of Jesus. You are curious. You have um, belief in God. You still have questions about Jesus. If that's you, I want to encourage you that you would stick with us because this text is going to seem particularly odd at first. But if you'll stick with us for the next 30 minutes, I think you'll find it oddly encouraging. So look at John chapter 15. The context is that this is the last moments Jesus has with his disciples. Literally the last hours. He's told them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's used wedding language to try to describe the way in which he is going to the cross in order that he would connect them with God. That they would move from enemy to friend, And he's even said that he's going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. He said that it is better that he would go away because the Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. And then finally, he has said that as a result of the fact that he is sending the Spirit, that our jobs is simply to abide. That we can do nothing apart from abiding in Jesus. Now, he ends this whole section with what seems like kind of a caveat or a footnote, but it's really a warning. And as I read verses 18 through 25, I want you, if you have your Bible app, I want you to highlight, if you have uh, the Scriptures in, in black and white, I want you to grab a pencil or a pen and underline, and I want you to count the number of times that you hear the words, hate or persecute. Hate or persecute. I'm going to begin reading in uh, John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's three already. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's four. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. That's six. If I had not... Sorry, verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that they have no excuse for their sin, whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. I counted a total of ten times. Ten times here that Jesus says the world will hate you or persecute you. Seems like an odd text. 
Seems like an odd way to, dis- to encourage your disciples in the last moments of your life. And just in case you think that he means by hate, by maybe in the Greek that word meant not agree. Well, actually it means to detest, to abhor, to persecute. It suggests a fixed, ongoing hatred. Okay? So it's pretty clear. What strange words coming from Jesus that so many people would describe Jesus as what? He's an okay guy. He's kind of like Mr. Rogers. These are not Mr. Rogers type words. Who says this kind of stuff that the world is going to hate you? It surprisingly sounds like the words of someone who's preparing a a guerrilla army to overthrow the ruling power. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, he's preparing his disciples to respond to hate in the, str- in the strangest sort of way. With courage and love. The big idea for today is this. The world's hatred motivates the Christian's love. The world's hatred motivates the Christian's love. I've entitled this message, The Strangest Love. Look at verse 18. We're going to jump in this text and try to move through it quickly. Uh, In verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It appears to be a conditional statement. If. But in fact, he's preparing his disciples for what will happen. And it really should be read not as a conditional statement, but if the world hates you and the world will hate you. Which is why he goes on to say ten different times, you'll be hated. That's why Paul would write in, in 2 Timothy in Chapter 3, verse 2. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Just push pause for a second. Can we just rewind that? I don't think y'all heard that. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. We don't believe that in the West, by the way. Let's keep going. Jesus is clearly stating that the world will hate his followers because it hated him first. And because our status as believers has changed, we're no longer in the world, but now we're in Christ. And all this is happening because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man are two opposing kingdoms with very opposing values. The world is a human society that's organizing itself without God. To be without God is to be in opposition to God. In rebellion against God. And those are not my words or my thoughts. That's what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. So that's Jesus thinking. The world hates Jesus because he testifies that their works are evil. That's what he said in John chapter 7, verse 7. He said, the world hates me because I testify that their works are evil. And it's not that the world fails to love. That's not the problem. The problem is that their love is selfish and short-sighted. It gives, the world gives glory to man rather than giving glory to God. The world lives in sin and refuses to acknowledge their need for a Savior, their need for a Rescuer. Jesus goes on in verses 21 through 25, and He reveals 
The world not only hates him, but he goes on to say it also hates the Father. The world hates God. Now, I want to push pause for just a second. And I want to, if you lead a missional community, or if you lead a small group, or if you ever lead devotions in the future, I'm going to give you an outline today that is a perfect outline for preaching a grace-based sermon every time. And it goes like this. What did the Scriptures say? And so far we've seen pretty clearly that the Scriptures say what? That we will be hated. Okay? So we're all in agreement there. What do the Scriptures say? The second point is this. Why don't we do it? Okay? What do the Scriptures say? Why don't we do it? And so in this instance, why don't we believe that the world will really hate us. The truth is, this is not the Christianity that's popular in the West today. Too many people claiming to follow Jesus have bought into a system of Christianity of kind of following the yellow brick road. Like, if we continue down this path of Christianity, it will result or end in some type of health and wealth and prosperity that could best be explained as your best life now. And it's a very subconscious yellow brick road that we kind of are brought into within the Christian church, oftentimes in the West today. All the while, the Bible clearly teaches if you have faith, you will find joy in Jesus despite hardship, despite persecution, and despite suffering. That's what the Bible teaches. Two very different paths. We really don't believe the world will hate us. Instead, the church in America today has traded holiness, oftentimes for the pursuit of relevance. And this great experiment over the last few decades has left us with a church that's largely unappealing to the culture. And it's largely unpleasing to God. And what you're going to find in 2022 is that it's going to take us all of next year to figure out what a new norm is in light of the pandemic. We're going to get some type of uh, a new norm. And in 2022, you're going to find that the church looks drastically different than what the church has looked like for the last few decades. We're already seeing it today. This great experiment of relevancy over holiness. And so, what's the answer? If the world hates us, and we don't really believe that, then what's going to be the result? Well, that's really the whole point of Jesus' message today. He's preparing us for what the results could be. It's a warning so that His disciples... And by the way, that's us. It's a warning that we will not fall away. A warning prepares you by allowing you to set expectations and and to make preparation. You know, a warning, we have warnings all the time and we don't heed them. Like, we receive warnings every time we, we get on an airplane. Should you lose cabin pressure, mask will fall from the ceiling. Your cushion is an inflatable device. Should there be a water landing? Like, who listens to that? No one listens to that anymore, right? But it's a warning. Why? In case you have a turbulent flight, it might be important to know. No pun intended there. Turbulent. 
Um, it's a warning for us, right? Here's the deal. Warnings come to us all the time, and they're meant to set our expectations so that we don't fall away. I'll give you another example. Um, I'm a runner. Runners are weirdos. They run for fun. Who does that, right? That's weird. I woke up at 6.30 yesterday morning. I ran nine miles just because it was cool outside, and I thought it would be fun. Um, but here's a warning that I received as a, as a runner that made all the difference. As I was preparing to run um, one of my first marathons, and I was trying to finish under four hours, one of my good friends, who was an Ironman um, at the time, he said, you need to know the first half of the race is not mile 1 through 13. The first half of the race is mile 1 through 22. You want to know what the second half of the race is? Mile 23 through 26. Because the last four miles, every step along the way, your body is going to be saying, Stop running! Just walk! This is a terrible idea! Why did you come up with this crazy idea of putting your body through all this pain? And my friend met me at mile 23, and he paced me the last four miles. And when my body was screaming at me, and one time where I started to walk, he started making fun of me. He said, well, if you're going to walk, at least drink something. And he made me mad enough that I drank something. I started running again. I finished under four hours. How did I do that? I had his help, and I had the knowledge to know that my expectations were that the last second half of the race is the hard part. And so I didn't give up. We need warnings. We, we need this so that we don't fall away. And Jesus is warning us, we will be hated. And He gives us the answer to how we should respond. So, the outline. What do the Scriptures say? Why don't we do it? The third most important question is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus was defiled. Jesus was hated Listen to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 9. It's Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus would even come into the world. Isaiah, in a prophetic vision, tells us what Jesus' life would be lived like. The prophet writes, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now, in the midst of all of that hatred, listen to verse 7. Is that This is how Jesus responded that makes all the difference. How did Jesus respond to hate? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. No deceit, even on the cross. I want you to think about that for a minute. What did Jesus do when when hate, the greatest hate in all the world, was poured out upon him, what did he do? He didn't open his mouth. 
When was the last time that you were accused of something you didn't do and you responded with silence? I remember when the last time was that I was accused of something that I didn't do and I responded with silence. Never! (laughs) I've never done that before. I mean, I'm always in a hurry to defend myself and equally to win the argument. Ask my kids. I've got a really short fuse sometimes. I mean, who does this? Who is silent? Who is met by the hatred of mankind, accused as an innocent man, and led to the slaughter like a baby sheep going to be butchered? Helpless, innocent, alone, and silent. His name is Jesus. Now, fourth point. How does this make all the difference? So what do the Scriptures say? The Scriptures say we're going to be hated. Why don't we believe it? Because we're buying into a different type of Christianity. What did Jesus do? Jesus met hatred on the cross with silence and obedience to the Father. How does that make all the difference? Well, what is your normal response to hatred? What is your normal response when someone hates you? There's three responses typically. I'm going to run through them really quick. We respond, we either escalate, we flee, or we, prog- or we show, we progress. We escalate, we flee, or we progress. Let me explain what I mean. When you're met with hatred, most of us will escalate. On the playground, I'm going to punch you in the face. Oh yeah? Do it. We escalate, right? Who's the bigger boy? Or we can look back and see where the church has escalated over time. Take the Crusades. The Latin church in the medieval period attempted to recover the Holy Land from Islam. Escalate. Holy war. Religious war. That's one way that the church has responded in the past. Think about the church today. Well, I wouldn't even call this group a church. They call themselves a church. Think about Westboro Baptist Church, which has nothing to do with any other Baptist in their right mind. But they are an extremist group that, that they show up and they claim to be a church. They protest using inflammatory hate speech. They picket U.S. soldiers' funerals. You've probably seen them before. That's like extremism, hate. That's how we're going to respond. The world hates us. We're in disagreement. We're going to hate them. The second way is to run and ignore. To flee. So we're either going to escalate or we'll flee. You do this all the time in your marriages. When you have a serious argument with your spouse, what's your your tactic? You either escalate and you're going to argue and you're going to figure out who's right or what. If you don't fight, then you flee. You remove yourself from the situation and pretend it never happened. Or even worse, simply give them the cold shoulder and completely ignore them. Not that any of us have ever done this before. Right? Anyone guilty as charged? So, we escalate or we flee or, and maybe this is the one that's the most subversive that we're seeing all throughout the Christian church in America today. We progress. When we're met by the hatred of the world, you're different than us. You're intolerant. We progress. We become weary when the majority of culture seems to hold to different values and beliefs. And if we aren't careful, we will slowly begin to slide down the slippery slope of a culture 
that frames love without justice and joy without eternity. Living for the kingdom of man instead of for the kingdom of God. Jesus did none of these. So the question is, how does Jesus' response to hatred make all the difference? He didn't escalate. He didn't flee. He didn't progress. I mean, think about it. He didn't give in to to Satan when Satan tempted him early on in his ministry. He didn't give in in the last moments on the cross, but he was obedient to the Father. The Creator died for the creation. The giver of life willingly gave up his life for us in order that we would be no longer enemies of God, but that we would be friends, forgiven, cleansed, unashamed, whole, liked, and loved. Oh, what a Savior. Do you see how this makes all the difference? I mean, who runs into the fire, right? Who runs toward the bullets? Only courageous people. People who understand that they are, according to to Peter, in 2 Peter 2.11, sojourners and exiles. And that their citizenship is in heaven, from which they await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. People who feel in their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain. People who would say with Paul, I count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We are that type of people. You say, no, I am not courageous. I don't run toward the bullets and I don't run into the fire. Well, neither did the disciples. Until the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit made all the difference. And and here's what's so important. What do the Scriptures say? Why don't we do it? What did Jesus do? How does that make all the difference? If you stop there, you might not preach a message of grace to yourself. How does the Holy Spirit empower us to accomplish what God has called us to in light of the Gospel? And we see it in verses 26 and 27 of this text. We'll end with this. In verses 26 and 27, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. Do you hear the positivity of this text? Jesus, who we said, I thought he was the okay kind of guy. I thought he was kind of Mr. Rogers. Like, he's telling his disciples ten times, you're going to be hated, you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted. Who does that? It's the last moments of his life. Do you hear what Jesus is saying in verses 26 and 27? Jesus is saying, God refuses to give up on the world. He refuses to give up on the world. And he refuses so much to give up on the world. He loves the world so much that he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to testify through your lives, disciples, that God is real. And that he forgives and he cleanses and he makes whole. And he renews. And he likes us and he loves us. And he's going to use you to do that. What an encouraging text. That God refuses to give up on the world. We'll be hated by the world. Because the world hates Jesus and the world hates God. But God has left us here to testify of His amazing love. And the Holy Spirit testifies through us as we're motivated by God's grace in our lives. 
And here's the results, flat out. You can take it to your grave. Some people will believe. Some people will believe. You say, how can you say that? Not because you're a great orator. Not because you've learned the Romans road or you have the right gospel track or you have the right argument that you're going to present to them. Not because you know what happens to the dinosaurs. Not because you have all the answers when, when it comes to all the questions within the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit is at work. And the Holy Spirit is still part of this world. And not only is He at work, He is in us. And He is motivating believers. And He is transforming the hearts of unbelievers. The question is, will we be the type of people that in the midst of hatred in the world, that we will continue to be faithful? I want to end with this. John Piper wrote an article in light of the election, and I think it's worth a read. Um, You might agree with it, you might disagree, that's fine. But I want to read, this has nothing to do with the election, it has everything to do with salvation. Um, I want to read just a portion of it. He says, May I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses. First, anarchy, then tyranny, from the right or the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. Which, by the way, is the majority of our world. It's one of the problems of American Christianity. We think Christianity is all about us. There is probably nothing further from really following Jesus than American Christianity. Because we are so blinded by our wealth. You go to Syria. You go to Afghanistan. You go to China. You go to North Korea. You pull out a Bible on any street corner and you start to preach. You'll just be shipped back to America most likely because you're an American. 